MSW Media. So, Renato, why did Hunter Biden's plea deal break down? <sighs> it's complicated. I'm Renato Miriati. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal contributor for ABC News. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down into a soundbite or a tweet. So, Asha, I think you were on ABC a lot today, right? Uh, I saw you, I saw the photo on your Instagram with the setup. That was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They sent a whole camera crew to my sister's house um, in this room that I'm in now, her her music room, um, and and set up. And I was basically uh, on standby for like five hours while, you know, Hunter's lawyers uh, and DOJ like tried to hash out uh, what this plea deal was with the judge who ended up not being very happy with what was being presented to her. So in the course of this, and you and I were were tweeting or texting to each other, and I know you tweeted a little bit. Um, so let me let me give the outline of what I understood, and then you can kind of clarify some of these different aspects because it sounds like this was just unusual in a number of different respects. Yeah, for sure. Um, and the the judge was kind of like, "What what are you exactly trying to do here?" So. What we're looking at here are three different crimes, I guess, right? Um, one, two are regarding failure to pay income tax. And Hunter Biden, the plea agreement, uh, he was pleading guilty to these two misdemeanor charges, and that was part of a plea agreement. Then there's this other gun charge, which is possession, illegal possession of a firearm as a person, a, a drug user or someone addicted to narcotics, which is illegal. Um, and this this stems from him lying on an application to purchase a gun. Um, and he was an addict at the time. And I guess he didn't like say I'm an addict. And so, you know, he should not have have been in possession of a firearm. And that was subject to a diversionary program. So this is how I understand it. This is not a plea agreement. This is DOJ saying, if you meet certain conditions, like you go to rehab, you don't commit crimes for X number of time, then we aren't going to prosecute you. We're not going to press charges for this. And so these were the two components of what DOJ agreed to with Hunter Biden. And the plea agreement regarding the tax... Well, let me stop there. Let, let's let's unpack that. I mean, is that... Yeah, there's a lot to unpack. That's just going to say, we better cover that because, wow. So when that, that's... This has already been reported. This this piece of, the, of what we're talking about is not new today. And I did write, I'll just say as a starting point, I wrote a column about it some time ago in Politico, where I basically say that Hunter Biden, to the extent he got special treatment, it was particularly harsh treatment because to start with that first uh, crime that you talked about, failure to pay income tax, that is a misdemeanor. 
And uh, you don't need to be a lawyer to know that most of the time when people don't fully pay their income taxes, they, they don't, there's not like a federal criminal case made out of that. I mean, you get a notice, uh, you get nasty letters from the IRS, you pay penalties and interest or something along those lines, but you're not, you're rarely facing criminal charges, okay, just for failing to pay. Now, people try to confuse this with things like tax evasion and tax fraud and stuff. That's totally separate, and I hopefully anyone who's listened to this podcast for a while knows that it's really complicated to prove uh, things like tax fraud. That's what the the tax division, and that's what the um, you know U.S. attorneys offices across the country are focused on charging is people who are really doing very you know um, affirmative ways, willful ways to evade taxes via fraud. This very different. So that's one thing. Okay, so that that's those misdemeanor charges. Then this pretrial, what I usually refer to as pretrial diversion, I think that's a, or kind of a technical name that's often used. Essentially what that is, and, and by the way, if you're thinking to yourself, I think I heard about this before, it's because it was also the same deal that was given to the company that put out the National Enquirer. Um, I forget the exact name of the company in that Stormy Daniels uh, hush money payment thing. So, you know, Michael Cohen got charges and for the same hush money scheme, that corporation got a similar deal. And and in my state, I would, whether it's a massive bribery scheme involving our power company, ComEd, um, the the former speaker of the Illinois House got indicted, but the uh, the corporation itself got a pretrial diversion. So how does how does that work? What is that? Well, that's basically an agreement between a component of the U.S. Attorney's Office in this case, or a component of the DOJ in this case, the U.S. Attorney's Office, and the person like Hunter Biden saying. If you stay out of trouble and do what you're supposed to do, in other words, you know, whatever, stay off drugs and don't don't break the law for a period of time, we agree not to prosecute you. You're going to be supervised by what's called pretrial services, which is an arm of the court that typically supervises people before uh, they are actually sentenced. This is while they're on bond, that sort of thing. And they'll make sure you're complying. And then if at the end of that you haven't complied, you've complied, this goes away. But you agree that you com- committed this offense, and if you screw up during this period, then you agree that we can use your affirmative statements acknowledging all of these things to prosecute you. Like, in other words, you admit you possessed a gun, you admit you were addicted to drugs, yada, yada. You admit all the elements so we can easily convict you. And, you, and that's usually considered a very favorable outcome for a defendant. However, I will just say, as I mentioned in my column, this charge is very, this case very rarely charged. And so in many ways, it's a very harsh, the fact that it's getting wrapped up into this at all is very, a very harsh treatment for him. But it seems like for that very reason, I mean, the the fact that this is a, you know, possession of a, a gun as a, when a, a user of drugs is nonviolent. He's a first-time offender. It seems like the kind of thing that is precisely what pretrial diversion is made for, because you're trying to conserve judicial resources. You know, this is not someone who necessarily belongs in jail, especially here. You have this underlying addiction that was, you know, the the main problem. So there's an interest in rehabilitating versus throwing him in jail and throwing away the key. Right. Exactly. 
in not only judicial resources, but prosecutorial resources. I mean, if this is really all they have, if it, if really this is all they have, this was a complete waste of, prose- of federal prosecutorial resources. Um, and typically, if you look at the statistics, which I cited in my column, I think out of the 20-something thousand gun cases over an X number year period that I, that I from the study that I was citing, like less than a thousand, you know, like 900 maybe were of this particular charge. It's very rare. Um, you, you know, there's a lot of people who are, let's say, using cannabis while they're possessing firearms in the United States. The, you know, the feds are not rounding those people up and charging them with federal crimes. The focus is generally on gun trafficking, on people who have violent criminal histories who are possessing it while they're, you know, felons. Um, and so it's a sort of a proxy for gang membership and violence and other things, but it's rarely, or, or you're possessing a crime in the context, in the, in the commission of a crime of violence or the commission of a drug trafficking crime, those are the sorts of charges that are usually brought, not, you know, possession of a gun while you're, you know, using a drug or a drug addict. Okay. So here's what I understood to be going down today. So we have these two different pieces of this, you know, agreement. Um, And the plea agreement, the one that is actually him pleading guilty and agreeing you know, saying I committed these misdemeanors, I understood DOJ to be saying this plea agreement, we are agreeing not to prosecute him for any other charges that could arise out of this conduct. And they cited a um, provision of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure uh, that basically says, yeah, this is what we're doing. We're saying we're saying as a part of this plea agreement that we're not going to charge him um, for anything else arising from this conduct. In the pretrial diversion piece, though, what you just said, Renato, is if you don't complete these conditions, then basically we reserve the right to prosecute you for this, to pursue, you know, charges. And I guess Mm -hmm. what it would seem ordinarily is this pretrial diversion is for the gun possession. And so if he were to not fulfill the conditions, it seems like the normal thing would be, okay, then we can go after you for this illegal gun possession. But what the judge seemed to be saying is, except that in this whole pretrial diversion part agreement, you have stuff about things that he's committed, you know, financial stuff and tax stuff. So... How does this make sense? Because on one hand, you're doing this plea agreement and saying you're not going to charge him for anything else arising from that. But yet you've included some of that conduct in this pretrial diversion agreement, which leaves open the possibility of charging him for something else. So what exactly are you still leaving on the table as something that he could face if he doesn't meet these conditions. And I understood the judge to be basically looking out for the defendant because it's her job to make sure that there is clarity on what exactly the defendant is agreeing and not agreeing to. Right. I mean, this is he's giving up a lot of rights here. Um, I mean, it's you know, we can talk about the sweetheart deal. It's also plea deals and these types of agreements, as we just said, conserve prosecutorial resources because they don't have to, you know, prepare for trial, improve their case beyond a reasonable doubt, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, the judge is kind of yes. going through to make sure there's a meeting of the minds here. 
Well, a couple of things. So first of all, I will just say, because I want to make this crystal clear here. I do not believe this was a sweetheart deal. If, unless there are some facts we don't know. In other words, yes, it may be that there's some crazy crime that he committed that we don't know anything about and that's being hidden. But putting, based on what we know now, this is the opposite of a sweetheart deal. It's a tough deal for him. And he's basically, if his name was Hunter Doe and or John Doe instead of Hunter Biden, um, I don't really believe that there would have been this level of prosecutorial resources levied to try to prove up these tax misdemeanors or, you know, possession of a gun while he's, he's taking drugs. And I just think the average person, this would have just been dropped long ago. And I don't think they'd even waste their time going to court to try to figure this out. He would have just agreed informally that he would just pay that check to the IRS and this would have been done. So uh, handled civilly. So I think in many ways, definitely not a sweetheart deal. So what is the judge trying to do? One thing I would say, and this is, you may, everyone can, can laugh that it may be cynical. Um, the judge is not really looking, she is looking out for the defendant of sorts, but she's also for she's looking out to make sure she doesn't have to like, yeah. for herself. <laughs> she's making sure that she doesn't have to deal with this for many months and years to come. And so what she doesn't want to have is a situation where the deal turn, goes south. It, it turns out to be a really bad deal for Hunter Biden. And then he blames his attorneys and so on and so forth. I will say, by the way, Hunter Biden has excellent attorneys um, in this case. And part of what the reaction was that that's weird and unusual is going on here. And I did talk a little bit about this on Twitter. I think there's more things going on than just this. And we could talk about it because I think one thing you're alluding to, Dash, is a little bit of incongruity in the two documents, which I think yeah. is a fair point. But the reason this blew up originally, right, there's multiple, multiple court appearances, right, today is my understanding, or at least there's multiple times in which they were on the record discussing this, yes. right? They talked in front of the judge and then when they went back later, right? Yeah. So I think the first time she was like, she was pointing out this incongruity and she was like, what exactly are the four corners of this pretrial diversion? In other I understood her to not. Well, she, she said, did you, I think she made a broad statement, a broad, broad question. Are you saying that this immunizes him from prosecution or you're not, you're agreeing not to prosecute him for anything going forward? Um, and, and the U.S. You know, attorney's office is like, no, our investigation's ongoing. We can't, we're not making that promise. And the defense is like, hold up here. We're, we're not doing this right now. They, they, they initially put the kibosh on this, so to speak. And I could totally understand that, that understand that from the defense side. And what, and what I just want to make sure I convey to our listeners, because this is very complicated, is that. In federal criminal cases, the government is not usually able to give you some like tablet in writing or, you know, certificate that says, you know, we're making these promises to you. And in fact, there's no way the government's going to promise that they aren't going to prosecute him in the future because for all they know, there's going to be some amazing new evidence that shows up next week of some new crime or whatever else. So they're never, it's very rare to get the U.S. Attorney's Office or any other component of DOJ to make that agreement. And any kind of global resolution, you know, the broader the resolution is, the harder it's it would be to achieve. And realistically, uh, it would never be achievable in this case. So what really has likely happened is there's been a lot of informal conversation between the prosecutors in this case and Hunter Biden's team. And these defense attorneys are assessing, reading the tea leaves of what's going on and assessing based on that they're hired for their expertise and their experience and being able to say, Base, you know, basically say to Hunter Biden, look, the prosecutors let us know they're basically winding down. They've, they've run down all their loose ends. They haven't found anything else. 
maybe they'll find something tomorrow, but they don't think they are. And as far as they're concerned, this is wrapping this up. So let's just wrap it up. Like, and that is not written in stone and there's no guarantee. But in this case, there's an abnormal amount of interest and an abnormal amount of pressure from the GOP and Congress and from the public and others. And so I think the defense initially was just reacting. The prosecution said something that was true, but I think they wanted to make sure, like, let's hold up on this and make sure that there's nothing that's changed. Like the prosecutors haven't suddenly got the urge to prosecute some other BS crime that would otherwise not be prosecuted, uh, be, you know, and, and because if the reality is they're going to charge them with 18 different things, then Hunter Biden's not going to enter into this deal because there's no point in pleading to or agreeing on three things now if you're going to face 15 other charges later. Does that, does that make sense? It makes sense. And just a couple of things. So first, on that point about not giving blanket immunity, I just sidebar, I think it's worth noting this is why that whole plea deal with Jeffrey Epstein was so bizarre, right? right. Because it had this like global right. immunity, not only for him, but for all unnamed associates. And it was just, I, it had a lot of this right. like, like crazy out there, um, you know, protection. Yes. I just, that's what it made me think of, like kind of how. Um, really good point. Yeah. So, uh, and, and what you're saying is that it's not, um, that's, that's not typical. Um, my question is, really? Like, given the politics and pressure around this, I'm very surprised that the defense would go on reading tea leaves and informal conversations as opposed to wanting everything spelled out crystal clear in in the agreement. And especially since it sounds like as a matter of like, you know, the court of public opinion, the U.S. Attorney's Office had been saying for a long time that this investigation is ongoing. In other words, they had been saying different things already. Right. Like, uh, you know, Hunter Biden's lawyers were like, this is going to wrap things sure. up. This is it. And then the U.S. Attorney's Office is like, if, I don't know. I just feel like if I were a defense lawyer, I'd be like, what you talking about, Willis? Like, let's just like you need to make it clear that this is done. I mean, I presume that, like, it's always understood that if something completely new comes up, then that's always fair game. But, like, right. I don't know. That just seems to me that they would have yeah. gone into court knowing that point of disagreement and somehow assuming that that was going to be, I don't know, to, that wasn't going to become an issue. Yeah, I do think there's more to it than the issue that we're raising. We can get to it in a minute. Okay. But I think regarding what I'm saying, uh, you know, look, I, I do represent uh, clients all around the country who are involved in what they think are high-profile things. They're high-profile in their jurisdiction. <laughs> Maybe not, not the president or the president's son or whatever, but they're very important cases to those, pro you know, to, the, in the, to those prosecutorial units. And I'm often making big decisions that their entire businesses and their lives are, you know, whatever, and, you know, hundred plus million dollar cases, they're making these big decisions on an indictment and they're more making it based on kind of my understanding of what I think the prosecutors are doing and communicating to me and whatever. And it's why, whatever, it's why I get paid to do that. But I think that in, I think, so I'm not, I don't really fault Abby Lowell and that team and they have very good lawyers. And I think what they're doing is they've made a calculation here that, they can't defend not paying your taxes. Like you didn't pay them. Like there's no defense to it. So it is what it is, right? So they're just, they're like, look, fine. If they tell us this is it, we'll plead to it. Worst case scenario, they decide, you know, seven months later, they're charging them with some other 
low-level crime, and we'll deal with that when the time comes. But we think, you know, if we can wrap this up, that that's such an upside for him, or uh, you know, there's so much upside that we're gonna just we're gonna roll with this because they're not gonna get anything in writing or some sort of grand agreement. Okay, so you said that was just one aspect of it, and then what's the other? Yeah. So here's the thing. This judge appears very qualified to be a judge, and I'm not suggesting otherwise she's been. She was appointed by President Trump, but I, my understanding is in that state, just like in my home state, there's an agreement, a bipartisan agreement that even when the president's a Republican, the Democrats have some say and vice versa. And so I, I understand her to be you know well qualified, but she's, I think she's been on the bench five years. I don't think she has criminal law experience. And this is these are kind of weird pretrial diversions, not something that's often before courts. They occasionally go before a court, but uh, you know, not usually. They're 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 often dealt with just via agreement. Like the one, the Southern District one we talked about earlier was not. I think I didn't think I don't think that went before a court. And so, I think she was reading a lot into specific provisions that the parties were not focused on, and. And so I think part of what's going on here, and we can't, the reason I, I'm being cagey about it is, I, candidly, I don't think the reporters in the room understood exactly what was going on. Some of them were calling me while I was defending a deposition, trying to get my understanding of it because they were clearly confused. So I think we don't fully know because we don't have the transcript. We don't, I don't think we fully captured. I think she had some confusion about this. Um and, and maybe, by the way, in part due to I thought I thought I heard some discussion, Asha, about whether or not from her end, whether or not w- there is a, a potentially a live issue of the constitutionality of this provision, because there is a Second Amendment challenge to it. And she's like, why aren't you just charging a false statement count, which this is all, that's a felony as well. False statement um, in, you know, he made a false statement on the forum and you know, part of the concern would be is that, you know, if there's a, if the, you know, conservative Supreme Court decides that you have a Second Amendment right to possess firearms while you're high on drugs, um, then, you know, he'd have a appellate issue and he would say his attorneys were, or, or 2255, he'd say that his attorneys were ineffective and bring some challenge, that sort of thing. So I, I might disagree with you that this was just her misunderstanding because as she was trying to clarify it does seem like this resulted in a clash between the Justice Department and Hunter Biden's lawyers. Like sure. she was pointing this out and she was like, so I don't know, you got a lot of stuff in this pretrial diversion agreement and it's a lot of stuff related to his tax stuff, whatever. Like what could you know, what else could you charge him with? Like, what's the scope of this? Uh, could you hypothetically charge him with? a violation of the Foreign Agent Registration Act, um, because presumably it, it includes information relating to his financial dealings with China or something like that. That's what I'm assuming, which to me, I don't know, that seems odd to have in a pretrial diversion agreement about possessing guns. And the prosecutors, the Justice Department lawyers were like, hypothetically, yeah, we could charge him with that. And then Hunter Biden's lawyers were like, what? Okay, then... This is a no-go. Like, we're just going to rip this up because that's not what we were understanding. And so then she's like, okay, clearly no one really understands what's happening here. So I'm going to send you out. This was the first time. She's like, I'm going to send you out to work this out. And and then they tried to, and then they came back. Now, the constitutional issue, 
I'm not sure about the Second Amendment one, but she did raise another constitutional issue, and it relates to what you said about how pretrial diversions are typically not before a court. Um, because she kept, right. I think in the earlier part, she was like asking, like, what do you want me to do with this? Are you saying I have some role in right. this? And they said, they kept telling her no. Um, but yet they had it in front of her. And then later she said, here's the problem for me is that you have this pretrial diversion agreement and you have these conditions that he needs to meet in order for this prosecution to be deferred or, or never pursued or whatever. But you've included language that says it will be like, I will be the one to decide whether or not he's met these conditions. In other words, if, mm -hmm. if the Justice Department believes that he hasn't met these conditions, then they're asking the judge to, to determine this. And what she said is, this is a prosecutorial decision. Like, this is a decision of whether to prosecute or pursue some alternative to prosecution. And when you stick me in the right. mix and you're putting it in my hands to say, yes, he violated these terms and so he should be prosecuted, that is not the role of the judiciary. Then you are asking me as a judge to take on a prosecutorial function. And um, I think that that has some serious separation of powers concerns that I don't think are appropriate. And from what I understand, the Justice Department was trying to say, well, we're just trying to create a process that will be fair and impartial. I assume that this is their good faith way of saying, like, if we decided it on our own, then people will assume will will accuse us of being politically motivated. So this kind of right. has a neutral arbiter. But perhaps they didn't see, I think she has a good point, if this is always done, you know, within the scope of the prosecutor's office, and typically, you know, before it even enters into the judicial system, um, then it really, there is no appropriate judicial role at that stage. Yeah, one thing that's sort of unstated here, and that's why I say that Hunter Biden in many ways is getting treated less fairly than the average person, is that I think if this was, uh, you know, Asha Rangappa was the defendant, um, although you're super high profile, Asha, um, if you were the defendant, um, I think that the judge might have issued an order or her clerk might have said something to the parties to say, be prepared to address this very specific issue so everyone could have like had a considered view and spent time researching it and figuring out within their offices how they wanted to approach this issue, maybe even had conversations in advance and how it worked out. Instead, it kind of all kind of played out in the record because she wanted this to be very public, you know, and so this way there's public faith in the process. And I also think, like you said, Part of what's going on in the U.S. Attorney's Office, they didn't want to have a private agreement, maybe in part because Weiss, who was appointed by Trump, doesn't want to stick around for that for for this entire period. You know, he he served his party, figured he's going to see this through, and then he's going to go back to private practice. And he's like, and then Biden would appoint the successor, but then that would be this huge issue. Um, is this person in part, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I think that there's definitely an, an element of that going on as well. So... Um, yeah, I, and I, and, you know, regarding this agreement and why it's done this way too, there's this whole interest. I, I remember when we had the power company agreement here in Illinois, that was such a big deal here. Like, I think there was like hundreds of millions that they had to pay that we were apparently as consumers overcharged because of this bribery scheme. Um, they, they purposely did it in a public court document and found some mechanism to do it that way. 
um, basically saying like, we're filing this information, but we'll dismiss it if, you know, you meet these conditions. Some, something that they were doing basically because they wanted the public to know. And I think they feel like the same thing's happening here with Hunter Biden. If it was like Asha Rangapa, they'd be like, okay, here's your private agreement and be done with it. Uh, this was not even worth the time it took us to write the letter. Um, but, but in this case, it's all playing out in this way because of the, the scrutiny and the irony is it's going to create more of it, right? Well, I think it was good that it played out this way because it clear. I don't know, maybe I'm just seeing this differently. I, I just see that this illuminated that they were completely not on the same page. That in agreeing to this pretrial diversion, it sounds yeah. like Hunter Biden's <laughs> lawyers were not entirely clear that the Justice Department was entertaining the notion that they might still pursue pretty serious charges like FARA, Foreign Agent Registration Act, or whatever it is. I mean, that was a hypothetical, but I don't know. It just seems weird that that would not have all been right. ironed out and figured out before. Like, it just seemed really Mickey Mouse to me. The whole thing seemed Mickey Mouse. Yeah. Like, sloppy. It's sloppy. I agree with that. It's a little sloppy. And, and I think... It just like, for example, I mean, there was a lot of, of um, speculation in the right-wing media after Weiss, who I think that's how you say his name, the the U.S. attorney, you know, who was appointed by Trump, made these statements saying, you know, I, I have not requested authority to do other things or, you know, this and that. They, he made statements that were vague enough to leave an opening for speculation as opposed to being very definitive. So, yeah, this wasn't rolled out as well as it could have. And, yes, it's true that this should have been hammered out. I think... Part of what's going on from their perspective to try to be fair to uh, to him and his team is the way they're probably looking at it is this is the sort of agreement that like we would they would put zero time into because it's such a waste of their time uh, to whatever they're getting 100k in taxes or something out of this and this guy's going to get probation and be done with it and they just they're they're trying their best here but it's probably getting very lawyered heavily lawyered on the other side and they're dealing with these high priced lawyers who raise all these questions and they're just trying to get it over with and I appreciate that but yeah I agree that you want to be as clear as possible given uh particularly all the scrutiny in the case so i think the resolution was that because of these issues and i think they tried to clarify some of the you know the four corners of the pretrial diversion, what what could theoretically still be open to, you know, charges, et cetera. But I think she had this constitutional question that she wanted to take under advisement. And so uh, she, I think she asked Hun Biden's lawyers, Hunter Biden, do you want to go ahead and plead guilty to the tax misdemeanors? And then I'll be looking at these other legal issues and they were like, no, we'll just plead not guilty until like, so kind of as a place. And I don't and I that seems like the right thing, right? Like you're not going to like agree to you're not going to relinquish all your rights until, you know, everything yeah. is completely cleared up and you know right. exactly what the final thing is. So it's sort of like, you know, all right, for right now, we're not we're we're pleading not guilty until we come back in two weeks and this whole thing has been clarified the judge is on board we know exactly what's happening there's a meeting of the minds so and it sounds like that will happen in two weeks right and so what i'll just say i mean I, i'm often cagey about predictions i'm not cagey about this one because i understand in the real world how this is going to play out which is 
if there is, I expect that they're just going to come back. This all gets worked out because unless the fundamental realities underlying it have changed, in other words, that the, you know, unless the U S attorney's office has some amazing new evidence of some crazy things going on in China or wherever, uh, or Hunter Biden's changed his mind about it. There, there's no reason not to keep going forward with the deal and clarify whatever they need to clarify. If something changes, that probably is bad news for Hunter Biden because it means that, you know, it, the prosecutors now, after getting some pressure or getting some new information, have decided they want to pursue other potential charges. So, Asha, before we go, um, you know, we talked just, what was it, last week or the week before about how much Twitter meant to us. And there's no more Twitter. We are dealing, we, we now have X. I don't even know how to say it, right? Are we Xing when we, when we tweet now? What's up it's with that? It's so dumb. It's so <laughs> dumb. I mean, I'm not, look, I'm not a marketing expert, but it seems to me that brand recognition is like a very valuable thing, right? You remember yeah. when Coke tried to rebrand itself and like yes. lost market share to Pepsi? I mean, it was so dumb. This is like, you know, the, one of the, biggest failures like that they teach in business school now like the cola wars and how like coke completely screwed it up um why why so and i'm not saying that as the letter i'm I'm asking the question (laughs) yeah well right yeah why would y and z were taken i guess Um, why But it was funny. Yeah, this this guy who wrote a book, I thought it was very interesting. This guy uh, X'd, I guess, instead of tweeted, whatever he did, tweeted uh, about a book that he had I'm written. I'm not about saying X'd. Musking. I'm saying tweeted. I'm so trying, trying to, to make, make X, X happen. happen. It's not going to happen. Um, but anyway, uh, but in all seriousness, apparently that Musk got uh, tossed off the uh, tossed out of PayPal because he originally wanted to reband PayPal as X, and. Peter Thiel and all these people at PayPal are like, what the heck are you doing? People are using PayPal as a verb right now, like PayPaling money and stuff like this is fantastic. We don't want to give up our awesome brand. Um, but apparently he had bought the domain x.com and was super for a million dollars and was super eager to use it. And so I guess that this guy's had this stuck in his head for years. Like he wants to have something called X. And so here you go. That's going to be at Twitter now. Well, and it sounds like he has this fantasy that X is going to be like an all-in-one app where we just do everything. Like we order food and we tweet and or whatever it is. And we... We send money and all these things. We yes. send money. It's like going to be the center of the financial system. Like it's... I just... He seems like just completely unhinged in kind of his like just ever since what he's it's just weird like i'm like really this guy is a billionaire like how he seems really dumb i mean i'm sorry he's dumb (laughs) when he first took over twitter i'm like okay because i'm very humble i don't know much about business like okay well this guy knows a lot about rockets or or whatever he knows, you know, about uh, uh, cars and so on, electric cars, whatever. I mean, I don't know. You know, he's just some rich guy. I didn't really think anything of it. But everything I've seen from this guy is just like really, really dumb. Like it's all this like right wing, you know, uh, propaganda stuff that he's pushing. He's he's really reduced the value of the app to me just as a consumer because he keeps boosting all these. Every random bozo pays him eight bucks, gets their voice boosted. So I can't find anyone who actually is 
good comments. Um, it's yeah. really challenging. It's just the app sucks now. I mean, his customer service line, like if you wrote to it, you got a poop emoji back. That was that was actually the Amazing. response that you got. Like if it when when journalists would write like not just customer service, but like there's like some like, you know, line to the outside. And if you write to it, you get a poop emoji. Well, it's emblematic of of the service. Apparently he's he's putting like puns with the word X in them, like you know, like sex with an E three for an, an E and X, like all these different puns with the letter X all over Twitter headquarters. It's just bizarre. I don't know what to make of this guy, but it, it's crazy because Twitter is one of the only social media companies that we really talk about right in media. And, you know, you could go on TV and they'll be like, Oh, you know, you can, this tweet occurred and like people, that's a really recognizable brand. I mean, frankly, if he abandons it, I think Meta should buy it and use it for threads, right? Just meaning threads, Twitter, and sure. take the logo. Yeah. Well, and then that's the other thing. He's getting rid of the logo. I mean, is there anything, you know, I mean, it's, what, it's like one of the most iconic social media lo logos, the bird. And now you don't even see it when you log in. Very He's weird. so lame. <laughs> lame. Um, wow. Well, <laughs> To be, to be seen, uh, X, so definitely X about this podcast, please X your friends. Okay, here's here's my, this is what I think of X. I can't think of some four-letter <laughs> words to describe it. M-S-W-Media. <laughs>